0: Good morning, nice to see you all this morning. So we're in the seventh day
1: of a seven day retreat, our annual Rohatsu retreat. That's why things are a bit more formal this morning than they usually are. Welcome everyone. Great to see you. Great to see the folks who've been in the retreat this week, uh,
0: folks on Zoom who have come for the talk, folks in the Zendo. Great to see you all. So, yeah, it's been quite a week. It's been
1: quite a week. There's never been a seven day retreat that wasn't quite a week. (laughs) It's an experience. It's an experience, it's been great. We're doing this at home because of COVID, that's necessary to do. And that's a bit disappointing, that's two years now that we've done Rohatsu entirely at home. But there's some nice things about doing it at home too, some really interesting things. Really interesting things about how do I relate to my household when I'm on retreat? What's it like? mixing in this kind of retreat quiet and this, all of these things that can happen in our minds on retreat, mixing that in with our home life. It's pretty interesting because this is an active practice, you know? We, we
0: bring it home and we see what happens here. And uh, it's really surprising how connected
1: we can feel, I think, on Zoom. Uh, This week, practicing with these folks, Um, most of the week we've had probably 15 to 23 people on the screen, uh, some more for a few of the talks, but that's been about the number. Uh, It's remarkable how close I think we can all feel uh, on Zoom. Well, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but I certainly feel it. I certainly feel a great closeness to uh, the retreatants, almost as if we were in the Zendo. And uh, that's wonderful. And it is an honor uh, to practice with you all. And you're all, you're helping my practice uh, so much. And um, I'd just like to uh, convey my heartfelt gratitude for that. And for the practice of everyone, everyone in the Zendo, everyone on screen here, for your practice, for your participation,
0: for your support of. Zen center. So Rohatsu celebrates the Buddha's awakening. We celebrate by
1: emulating him, by engaging in awakeness ourselves. We're already awake. Sometimes we don't believe it, but we are. So we get together and we engage in awakened activity. And, um, A little later uh, today, we'll have a ceremony. We have an annual Buddha's awakening ceremony and you can see the altar behind me uh, that we've set up for this uh, purpose and we'll be making some offerings and doing a lengthy chant about the Buddha's awakening. And because Rohatsu is about the Buddha's awakening, uh, we chose a theme. I've been uh, leading this retreat with Ben And uh, we chose the theme of the seven factors of awakening. Uh, Fits pretty well, I think. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the seven factors. Uh, For those of you who have been in the retreat all week, it'll be a bit of a summary of what we've covered. For those of you who haven't, it'll be uh, perhaps an introduction uh, to this uh, teaching. And the seven uh, factors of awakening are mindfulness, investigation of dharmas, energy, rapture, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. And these are seven aspects of enlightenment and they are both the cause and the uh, effect of enlightenment or let's say awakening. We've been using the term awakening rather than enlightenment, because enlightenment sometimes kind of carries some baggage like, I want that, and I don't have that. Awakening, we're all awake, right? We can be awake. Anybody can be awake. But enlightenment sounds a little too, a little too lofty. So these factors are both the cause and effect of awakening. If we are mindful that will cause us to realize our awakening, to understand our awakening, to get it through our heads that we're already awakened. Uh, But if we're awakened, that will also cause us to be mindful. Cultivating tranquility will help us to be awake. And if we're awakened, we will naturally be uh, tranquil. And so these seven factors Another thing about them is they show that there are many aspects of awakening. And these factors, this is such an alive teaching, I think. I've never taught this before. And it just kind of amazes me how some of these factors fit with personal experience, how this old, old teaching from 2,500 years ago just seems to reach something deep in our psyche that just really makes sense. And so we have these seven factors, and uh, they're meant to be a progression in some ways. You move from one factor to another, but it doesn't mean that any one of them is the pinnacle and the ultimate goal. We're not starting here to get to the top. So awakeness is characterized by all of these factors, by uh, rapture by calm, by equanimity, by mindfulness, et cetera. And they're all important. And it's important to remember that they're all important because that could challenge our idea of what awakening is. Because when we think of being awake as something separate from what's happening right here, right now, which is a mistake we all make quite a lot, when we think of it as separate in that way, we might get certain ideas about it. We might get the idea that being awake means we're mindful all the time. Or maybe it means we're calm all the time. Or maybe it means we feel energy and or rapture all of the time, or equanimity. And we may think, if I can't uh, reach one of those states, then I cannot be Uh, Awakened. So it's good to remember that there are these seven factors. It's all of these things. If we have a narrow idea of what being awake is, we're going to limit ourselves. We may reject parts of our experience Mm -hmm. as not being consistent with a wakeful state. We may think that if we're closed off, from one type of practice that we're closed off from being awake. We are not, we can practice
0: all of these. So these factors, uh, this is a
1: teaching of the Buddha. Uh, it's set forth in a number of the original texts in the Pali Canon. So this is a Theravadin teaching of Vipassana teaching. Uh, So it's pre-Mahayana, pre-Zen. And uh, that's that's fine. We, as you, I'm sure you know, we often explore other traditions and they really bring a lot to our understanding. Um, So as I said, there's kind of a progression here and I'm going to talk about it that way. And um, talking about a progression in practice in this way, might seem a little un-Zen-like, because in Zen, we talk about, it's right here, it's just this, and we have 10,000 ways of saying, it's right here, it's just this. We don't say, you know, you can be here a little bit and you master that, and then you move on to being a little bit more here and then more here. No, you're just here, you're just here. That's it, that's it. So this idea of a progression, you know, may seem a little un-Zen-like, but it is helpful. Because even though it's all here right now, we do go through stages in our understanding. We do deepen our practice, and that's fine. And so if this progression kind of corresponds to something you've experienced, that's great, and that may be helpful. So the first one, the first factor is mindfulness. And this isn't exactly like some contemporary ideas of mindfulness. Uh, I talk about mindfulness a lot, and I'll often talk about how it's very important to do both meditation and mindfulness practice. And the distinction I'm making there is there are things we do on the cushion, and then there are things we do off the cushion where we bring that meditative uh, uh, way of being to our activities. So mindfulness is being very focused in an activity the way we can be very focused on the cushion. Uh, And that's helpful, and I'll keep talking about that, but that's not really the way the Buddha talked about it. Uh, The Buddha's mindfulness occurs in meditation, in action, and it even occurs in contemplation. So it's much broader than that kind of uh, contemporary idea of mindfulness that I'm talking about. And there are four mindfulness practices. Uh, The first is contemplation of the body, something that we can do in meditation or at any time, just checking in and being aware of how the body feels. Very, very basic to mindfulness. Uh, Second, contemplation of feelings. Um, We can pay attention to feelings that come up. We can pay attention to whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We can experience them. Number three is uh, states of mind. This is the third mindfulness practice. States of mind are not fleeting like feelings. They're more comprehensive states of mind. And all the complications that come with them are part of those states of mind too. So that might be something like grief. It might be something like getting a little obsessed with some idea. And where does that come from? Uh, what is the habit, energy there, et cetera? And the fourth mindfulness practice is contemplation of mental objects. And this is very broad. This could be any factor in your life, internal or external. It could include things from your culture, from your society. So for contemplation of mental objects, uh, this involves thought. Uh, within the parameters of the Dharma. So that is uh, mindfulness. And the second factor of awakening is investigation of Dharmas. And it's really very similar to the mindfulness practices, and but it's it's highly technical. Uh, the literature that came out of India is highly organized and highly technical. And I was lucky on this one because Ben and I have been trading off day to day. And Ben got this one, which is highly technical. And he's good at explaining the technical stuff, right, Ben? Because he talks about, he, he knows all the technical stuff. And he tells you like why it's important, why we do this, why we can benefit from this. And also why we don't need to get too uptight about it. If we don't master everything that's technical. So investigation of dharmas, is very uh, refined techniques for doing this. And we can engage in those if, if we wish. Number three, the third factor is energy. Uh, mindfulness brings energy. If we are mindful, we will find energy naturally arising in our bodies. And there are two ways to look at this. We can bring energy to the practice in order to become awake, or we can become awake through mindfulness and the energy naturally arises. And I spoke about this one, and I, I uh, summoned some energy, and that was fun, a little more than I'm uh, displaying this morning. It was great. And the fourth one is rapture. And Ben was lucky enough to get to talk about rapture. Energy brings rapture. And sometimes it's translated as joy, sometimes as happiness. But when we unleash this energy, and I talked about uh, physical energy in the body and how important it's been to my own practice, whether you think of it as chi or uh, kundalini or as chakras, that sort of thing, things I haven't studied, but I seem to have some experience of These are things we don't talk about so much in Zen, but I think we should talk about them a little more because people do experience them. And if you find yourself experiencing this kind of thing, these physical manifestations, this rather astonishing energy, um, it's good to talk about it. Find a teacher who's tuned into that. Come see me. Talk to me about it. It's fascinating stuff. And it brings rapture. It can lead to this really stunning feeling of of okayness and energy. And rapture, which is not a bad deal at all, leads into calm or
0: tranquility, which is also not a bad deal at all. Calm or tranquility. The rapture comes
1: first, then the calm. Uh, I talked about how one teacher said that Westerners tend to want to go from uh, busy, busy, awful life straight to calm. But that's pretty hard to do because if you have all of this energy going, you really need to kind of work with the energy, kind of let the energy be, let the energy arise, let it express itself in a manner uh, that is consistent with your Dharma understanding uh, in a way that you can really experience it, uh, let it be in that way. And then after that comes calm. And then calm leads to the sixth factor, which is samadhi. And uh, Ben talked about this one as well. And this one is also quite technical, but he did talk about a less technical, more Zen view of samadhi, which is ocean seal samadhi, where phenomena are like waves, and we are like the ocean, if I may simplify this a great deal. And you can't destroy the ocean. We can be unperturbed in samadhi. It's just waves. Phenomena go by, but there's a kind of a background, a kind of base, which is not really a thing,
0: but it's not disturbed by the phenomenon. And that sounds a little bit like equanimity,
1: which is the seventh one. uh, And that's the one I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. Equanimity. Samadhi leads to it. Uh, But first, I would just like to
0: address um, the question, uh, why are we talking about this stuff now? Because it did occur to me that you know things
1: are things are difficult now. We're doing this because of COVID. You know, COVID is uh, seems to be getting worse. Uh, a lot of a lot of things are wrong. There are a lot of you know problems in the world, and here we are talking about um, rapture, you know, personal rapture and calm and equanimity. And these qualities we all really want to have. And does that seem a little selfish? And it is not. It is not selfish. I believe it is because of the difficulties of the world that we really need to look at this stuff. Those of us who have been able, have been lucky enough to be able to take an entire week to look into this stuff, to work on our own practice, to find hopefully some calm, to find some Uh, equanimity. That's going to help us to be more effective bodhisattvas. The happiness we can find is going to radiate outward. And it is essential. It is essential to do this. Uh, It is not taking anything away from all beings. It is helping all beings.
0: We We will go back out there So equanimity, what is it? What is it?
1: I've got some definitions here. Ajahn Apachado says, uh, from tranquility and the ongoing investigation that we're doing, uh, a sense of coolness and detachment arises. You'll have happiness and mental stability when you have equanimity. When a person has equanimity, you can put them under stress and they'll handle it which is something that we all would really uh, love to encourage in ourselves, right? To be able to handle anything that comes along. And, you know, I can't promise this practice will make you imperturbable, but it may help you to recover more quickly. It may help you to be more uh, resilient, less uh, swayed and blown about by the worldly winds, by the vicissitudes of life. So it has an energy, but it has a detachment and a coolness that gives stabi- stability to the mind in the long term. Uh, Thera Piedassi says, it is mental equipoise, the result of calm, concentrative mind, which is Samadhi. Touched by happiness or pain, the wise show neither elation nor depression even keel. Ajahn Theradamo says, we're all familiar with the multitudinous ups and downs of our moods. I love that phrase, multitudinous ups and downs. Don't you love language that sounds like exactly the thing it's describing us, describing, I'm so tired of those multitudinous ups and downs. This emotional roller coaster we learn is not satisfying once we've been up and down and up and down on this endless roller coaster.
0: And equanimity is getting off of the roller coaster. And, oh, this morning I was, up, uh, I was up at four
1: and I looked out into my backyard at 420 and I couldn't believe it. There's snow here in Minnesota. Nice blanket of, I don't know, a couple of inches of
0: of snow. And uh, that's perfect for a day when I'm doing a talk on equanimity.
1: Because, for one thing, let's not get rattled by it. Let's not go to that place like, oh, winter, oh no. <laughs> let's enjoy it. But for another, the snow, it brings a sameness to everything, it covers everything. Everything has this white quality, everything seems a little protected a little blanketed, a little muted. And it brings this feeling inside, doesn't it? It, uh, it uh, mutes our faunching spirit a little bit. And uh, this, this feeling of, of, being, of being inside and being in a safe place, which is, which is a nice feeling to have. We know we'll have to go out into the cold We know that feeling sometimes may not be there. We know a long winter is coming, but we can be okay with whatever it brings. We've seen snow before. We know how this works. And we can go about our lives quietly.
0: And also, of course, we can ask, does anyone out there need a blanket? So equanimity is really
1: important in Buddhism because it's kind of at the top or at the end of all these lists. It's the seventh of the seven awakening factors. It's a factor in the fourth jhana, which is part of uh, the samadhi scheme. It's the fourth of the four divine abodes. And to me, it's uh, so important at this time of and place, and it does seem kind of special um, because uh, the emphasis, you know, calm and and uh, and mindfulness and rapture, those things do relate to the entire world, but they seem a little bit like personal qualities. But equanimity really kind of is about how are you going to meet the things that happen, how are you going to meet the things out in the world. So coming at the end of the list, it's kind of like they bring us uh, maybe full circle. We start with mindfulness and mindfulness of everything that affects us, everything in our culture, everything in our society. We become mindful of it. We go on this maybe inner journey. And at the end, equanimity is, yeah, so how do we react to that stuff? How do we react to this stuff in our society, our culture? How do we we change things? And it reminds me a little bit of the 10th ox picture, or the sixth ox hurting picture, depending on which scheme you use, where after this journey of you know capturing the ox, taming the mind, where does it end up? Back to the marketplace, back in the world. So equanimity, a wonderful thing to have. We can so benefit the world with our equanimity because something happens, we don't get so flustered we recover quickly, we go in there and we help. It's a wonderful quality to have.
0: And how do we cultivate it? Well, because it naturally
1: arises from all of the other factors, mostly we just do the practice. And I'll talk about that more, but there are some things we can do to cultivate equanimity. One is that we can contemplate that at the heart of equanimity is accepting impermanence. It is giving up our resistance to change. That's what it's all about. And I have a couple of passages here from uh, Sharon Salzberg, a Vipassana teacher, in her book, Uh, Loving Kindness. She talks about this very nicely. She says, equanimity is a spacious stillness of the mind, a radiant calm that allows us to to be present fully with all the different changing experiences that constitute our world and our lives. When we look carefully at our experience, both internal and external, we see that change is fundamental Intrinsic to the entire
0: living world. Equanimity is based on understanding that the conflict and frustration we
1: feel when we can't control the world is because we are trying to control the uncontrollable. We know better than to try to prevent the seasons from changing or the tide from coming in. Following autumn, winter comes. We may not prefer it, but we trust it because we understand and accept its rightful place in a larger cycle, a bigger picture. Can we apply the same wise balance to the cycles and tides of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences in our lives? And that's the key, don't try to control the uncontrollable. And we tend to spend so much time doing that, you know, to uh, uh, be upset by impermanence, to be upset by winter, to be upset by things that we really can't change. But if we can accept the things we can't change, figure out what we can change and, put all of our energies there, we're not wasting all of our energy. So there's a great acceptance and there's also a great resistance to what is wrong, but you do it skillfully. You don't
0: try to do things that are impossible to do. To see things as they are, to see the changing nature, to see the
1: impermanence, to see that constant flow of pleasant and painful events outside our control, that is freedom, she says. So we can contemplate impermanence. We can also remind ourselves not to get too stuck on the highs and lows and, uh, I'm sorry, but if you want to have equanimity and avoid the lows, you may have to give up some of the highs too. You know, you can't just go to the high place and never go low. And one thing I've noticed at Zen Center folks I talk to is we don't glory too much in the good stuff. You know, we might have an event, we might have a beautiful event and we've had several lately. For instance, the uh, initiation, and it was it was great and we talked about it that night and maybe the next day and maybe did a little debriefing and uh, uh, expressed our joy about it. But after a big event like that, what happens the next morning you're in the zendo at 5:45 a.m and you're lighting the candle and you're on with your life. So kind of keep an even keel there. Don't get too excited about anything. Another thing is I think we can widen our perspective because we tend to get upset by things when we don't put them in their wider context. You know, these little things can kind of swell up and take over your world. That can actually happen in retreat. I don't know if you ever got kind of obsessed about some weird little thing in retreat, and then the next day you go, "I can't
0: believe I was so upset about, you know, the toast or whatever, or the lack of toast, whatever. But um, Yeah. So widen our perspective <laughs> so as not to be so
1: swayed by the vicissitudes of change. And uh, this happens, I think a lot of this happens uh, as as people get older. Sometimes folks tend to narrow their world as they get older, but for many people, they have seen so much for so long, so many ups and downs and births and deaths and graduations and this and that, that they kind of take each thing as they come. Uh, And we see this in retreats, I think as well, uh, I remember my first retreat, and it was incredibly dramatic, incredible highs, incredible lows. And now years later, after doing many retreats, I still have highs and lows. It's the nature of a retreat that your energy fluctuates, and one day you may feel great, and the next day you may feel really low. But, you know, I don't get too excited about it. When I'm low, it's like, okay, I'm low. When I'm high, it's like, okay, I'm high. This will last, you know, maybe another two hours, and then it'll be over. I'm just not going to get too excited. So we widen our perspective. And we see this in chants and ceremonies at MZMC. At the beginning of them, we'll invoke the Buddhas and the ancestors. Uh, At the beginning of the meal chant, we invoke all Buddhas throughout space and time. I like to do this kind of thing when I do um, um, weddings or funerals. I often will kind of talk about the family. I'll talk about the great grandparents. I'll talk about the little children because each of us is kind of connected, you know, three or four generations back and three or four generations ahead. And I like to evoke that because it really puts things in perspective. These things we're talking about, these cycles, these ups and downs, you know, they not only happen over our long individual lives, they happen over many generations. They go back 2,500 years to the Buddhist time. They go back before that. They go far into the future. And if we can kind of dwell in a mental space where all of that is here,
0: we're not so likely to be torn up by the next new little thing. So, but mostly equanimity
1: is... The outcome of practice. And you don't have to pursue it. You uh you just practice. And I've seen uh I've heard folks on a number of occasions say, Wow, you know, this thing happened to me, and it really didn't bother me that much. And I know a year or two ago, before I started practicing, it really would have upset me. Maybe something is happening there, and it's always so wonderful to hear that. So Just practice, we just need to practice. And that means uh, to commit to a spiritual path, whatever that means to you, and there are many paths, there are many forms of spirituality and there are individual spiritual paths, people find their own. But uh, Zen is the one I know, the one that's most effective uh, for me, that has been very, very uh, helpful for many people. And so I'm going to talk about the basics of practice just a little bit here, um, which we already know, but with the new year coming and challenges ahead and many of us being in a rather receptive place from being in retreat all week, I think it's a good time to reiterate it, uh, that it is so helpful if... Number one, of course, what is the basic thing about Zen practice? It is sitting. It is doing regular sitting and getting instruction and support because sitting is a subtle thing. We can kind of lose the thread of what we're doing. It's good to come back, talk to teachers, talk to
0: other practitioners. Mindfulness practice, uh, in the sense of being.
1: Uh, there with great attention in the midst of your activity is very important. Uh, Retreats are very important. Uh, A seven-day retreat is very difficult. I'm guessing if you were to ask these uh, 15 or 20 people who have been in this retreat, if if it was worthwhile, it was worthwhile to take that week off, I think you would probably get a resounding yes.
0: And Community. Community is very important. And
1: we have a wonderful community here. As most of you know, most of you are participants, kind of thick in it. But if you're new, if you haven't really experienced our community, I invite you to do that in person by coming to the Zendo if you can, coming to the Zendo later if you're not ready to come now because of the COVID situation, that's okay. Participating on Zoom, uh, there are all of our programming almost is, is accessible in that way. So I invite you to practice here. And uh, uh, if you can find the time to practice uh, extensively, if you make time for practice, practice will give you that time back. I know it's hard to believe, but it always seems... To happen just do it take the time to do that practice I don't have
0: an hour today take an hour and see what happens on an incredible busy day so yeah and take refuge in our sangha you know
1: that's like being uh being in a warm house on a on a snowy day I can hear the wind outside kind of howling and I see the snow blowing off my neighbor's roof there, and it's a, really, it's a really special feeling, this feeling of refuge. you know. Ultimately, we know this practice is about the refuge of no refuge, knowing that we need to be comfortable in impermanence, but there are two sides to that. We support each other in that uh, rather difficult uh, endeavor of realizing that deep in our bones. We, we support each other. And it's a loving community. And uh, I am uh, so uh, privileged uh, to be a part of it. And that's what I have to say this morning.